How many of you have taken the trip up to Helen and tubed down uh, the river in Helen? How many of you? Yeah, a few of you. Uh, my first time was just a couple of years ago. It was actually one of the first summer camps that our church ever did. It was up in that area, and we took a day and went over. Only time I've tubed down uh, Helen. I grew up in South Georgia, as many of you know. And so when we wanted to go tubing, we didn't go north. We went south uh, from Tifton uh, into Florida, just south of Lake City. There is a river called Itchitutney Springs. Any, anybody been down Itchitutney? Heard of it? Nobody. Uh, two, yes, thank you. God bless you. I see those hands in the back. You are, God loves you more than everybody else here. Um, yeah, so uh, Itchitutney is, is fed by nine different springs, and it's beautiful and crystal clear. I brought some, uh, some pictures uh, from Itchitutney. These were online. These aren't my pictures, but... Uh, that's what it looks like. It's this beautiful, crystal clear water. It's about six miles. takes you about three and a half hours to get all the way down. The other aspect of Itchitutney is it's freezing cold. I was looking online this week, and they say that year-round, there's a constant temperature of 72 degrees, but it feels like 42 degrees when you jump in on a hot summer day. It is freezing, and you... Get, uh, when you get cold, you just get as high on the inner tube as you can possibly get, and hopefully the sun is shining, it's not raining, and so you can warm up on top, and then you can get in the water, and you can cool off, uh, because it's cold. So three and a half hours of this, by the time you get to the, the part where you come out of the river, parts of you are frozen that have been in the water submerged for most of the time. It's freezing cold, but it's a fun day. And when you're a kid, you don't feel temperature, right? When you're, when you're a teenager, you just have a great time. And, and that's the way it was. It's so relaxing just to sit on top of the inner tube, bunch of friends, and just drift down the river for three and a half hours. And while that is relaxing, drifting in life can be dangerous. Drifting in our personal lives, in, in our relationships, in our marriages, it can be dangerous just to pick our feet up, sit on top of the inner tube, and just go with the current. And not only our personal lives, it can be especially dangerous spiritually. When we just pick our feet up, and we just sort of ride along with where everybody else is going, and what we believe, and how we act, and how we conduct our relationships and our, and our marriages can be extremely dangerous just to drift. And yet, we, we live in a culture where spiritually, that's where a lot of people are. They're just drifting. They're not really deciding what they will believe. They're not really holding fast to what they know to be true. Instead, feet up, top of the inner tube, just floating down. The problem is, when you drift, when you, when you float for a long time, you look up at some moment and you don't recognize anything on the bank. You don't even know where you are or how you got there or how you're going to get back. That's part of the problem with the church we're going to look at today. If you're new, we, we've been going through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It's the very last book of the Bible, easy to find. We're up to the third church. It's a church called Pergamum. Pergamum is very similar to Ephesus and Smyrna. They share a, share a lot of the same traits, 
Uh, the big difference is Pergamum's the capital. It's the Roman capital in Asia. Uh, all of these are kind of modern-day Turkey. But it, it was the political, it was the seat of government in Asia for the Roman government. So extremely powerful. It wasn't nearly as economically powerful as Ephesus and Smyrna. Maybe not even as culturally powerful, but politically powerful it was. Uh, they too had a library. I know I keep mentioning the libraries, and, and that's not a big deal for us in 2019 because we have libraries everywhere, right? Every county has a library. Every school has a library. Uh, but this was before all of that. The, there wasn't a Barnes & Noble. There wasn't an Amazon. There wasn't any of that in first century uh, A.D. So if you housed important documents, you were an important city. And not only did the library at Pergamum house important documents, they had over 200,000 volumes in this particular library. It was the largest library in Asia at the time, second largest library in all of the Roman Empire, 200,000 volumes. As a matter of fact, the word parchment, our English word parchment, comes from a a derivation of the city named Pergamum, because parchment was created in Pergamum. Incredibly important city. They had their gods and goddesses just like the other two, even more temples to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. Their worship practices revolved around god and goddess worship and emperor cults, it being the capital, even more so than Ephesus and Smyrna. They were committed to Rome. They had all kinds of temples to different Roman emperors. Caesar is Lord was expected to be the mantra of everyone who lived in Pergamum. And just like in Smyrna, that was tension for those who followed Jesus because they only had one Lord. They only had one God. And they were not willing to name anyone else as their king or their Lord. They lived under the laws of the land but they were not going to identify Rome as their Lord or their King. A part of the God and Goddess worship, one of the central images of Pergamum was uh, what was called Zeus's altar. It was the altar to the god Zeus. I have a picture here. This is a recreation, obviously, of what Um, archaeology has determined it would have looked like. It would have sat, you saw the picture up on the hill, it would have sat up on the Acropolis at the top of the hill, and it was the entranceway sort of to the Acropolis, and and that's where they would come and sacrifice and worship Zeus. So all of this is going on in Pergamum, and there's a little church there, and Jesus is going to make comments to them. This is beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, Right, and if you weren't here early, the angel is just the leader, the messenger, the person who's delivering this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That's a lot going on there, right? a lot of references and images, and let's do our best to kind of walk through those. The the first image, Jesus presents himself as the one who has the double-edged sword. If you go back to chapter 1, 
when John saw Jesus for the first time, John said he had a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Jesus references that at the end of the letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, I think it means a couple of things. Uh, for one, the sword represents power, and he still does. Uh, we think of the sword, that, that's a, an analogy for power. It was the same thing in the first century. Jesus is saying to the citizens of Pergamum, don't forget, I'm the one with power. That sword represents the power that Jesus had. Now, they're living in uh, a city where Rome has all the power. At least that's what it looks like. I mean, they're feeling the pressure from the Roman government. Uh, Jesus even says that one of their friends, a guy by the name of Antipas, has already been put to death for his faith. If you were here last week, uh, you remember that Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna were, there's going to be persecution in the future. Right? People are going to be tortured in the future. People are going to die in the future. In Pergamum, Jesus says, that's already started happening. You already know somebody who's paid with their life for believing in Jesus. So just objectively looking at the city, all of the power was on the side of the Roman government. So Jesus says to his people right up front, you got to remember, I'm the one with the power, really. Ultimately, I have the power that you need to live where you currently live, to be who I've called you to be. You can trust me. You can lean on me. The person that you pray to, the name that you call out in worship, that is the one who really has power. And the same is true for us. Like whatever you're walking through, whatever I'm going through, whatever we might face in the future, remembering that the power may look out there, we may feel the pressure and the squeezing of out there, but ultimately Jesus is the one who has the power. Knowing that, knowing where ultimate power resides, we must resist fear and anxiety when we look at the world. Because that's often how we respond when we feel powerless. When we feel like all of the power is out there, all of the power is coming against me. We have to resist feeling fear, feeling anxiety because of what we see on the news, right? What we see in our culture, what we see in our world. Sometimes we, we watch it, we read it, and we, and we begin to get anxious about what's happening in the world. Jesus' message is the same today. Nope. I still have power. I'm still in control. Everything's not as it should be. It will be someday. I will make things right. Don't live in fear of what's out there. Sometimes we begin to think of they and them. Well, what are they going to do? Well, what if that person gets elected? Right? Well, what if those people get power? Or what if that group is in charge? We have this fear about these people getting control or that person being the boss or that person having influence. And Jesus would remind us, just like he reminded this church, like they're never going to have ultimate power. I, I got news for you. Ultimate power is never going to be in Washington, D.C. It's just not. Ultimate power is never going to live on Pennsylvania Avenue. Right? It, ever. And, and we are a part of... A country, but we're a part of a kingdom before we're part of a country. And ultimate power resides in our kingdom 
and not in our country. Yes, let's be wise as serpents. Let's be harmless as doves. Let's be smart. Let's be all of that. Let's live under authority because that's what the Bible tells us to do is to live under authority. We just can never confuse where power comes from. Power is held in the hands of Jesus. Therefore, not only should we resist fear and anxiety that tend to crop up in us, we should resist putting our hope and security in earthly systems too. That's, that's another tendency when we begin to fear, when we begin to feel that, that we're losing power. That's when we begin to think, well, if we get that person in power, well, if we, they pick this person, well, if we can just maneuver and manipulate the system so that we have more power. No, power is not in earthly systems. Power is not in earthly rulers. Power is not in earthly kingdoms. Yes, again, wise as serpents, harmless as doves, living under authority. But power is in Jesus. Power is in the one that we worship today. Last thought on this sword idea. Not only is it a representation of power and that we can have confidence that ultimate power is in Jesus, but the sword throughout the Bible is always a reference to God's word. It's always a reference to truth. So when Jesus says he has a sword, he means, yes, he has power, but he's also saying, look, I'm coming with the truth. I'm coming with what is real. I'm coming with what you can believe. I'm coming with what you should give your life for. I am speaking the truth about all things, and you could commit your life to that. These two issues were the big problems in Pergamum. They were living under the power of Rome, which is leading to fear and anxiety. And some of them, as a way of adapting, as, as a way uh, of staying out of trouble, they were beginning to compromise the truth that they had been taught. Another image that Jesus uses. He mentions Satan twice in these first couple of verses that we read. Uh, on the one hand, he says, I know that you live where Satan's throne is. And then a few verse, verses later, he says, I know your city, it's where Satan lives. And there's a, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what Satan's throne was. Like, what was he talking about? There's no agreement on specifically what it was. Now, the people in Pergamum probably identified it with something specific. We don't know what that was. It could have been the altar to Zeus. Some people think that's what it was. Because there was this worship of the god Zeus, that's what he meant. It was iconic for that city. Some people think that's what he meant. Other people think it was just the presence and dominance of Rome in that city, that, that heavy-handed Roman uh, authority. Some people think that's what he meant. All the emperor cults and emperor worship that was going on there. One of the main gods for Pergamum was believed to have healing powers. So people would come from all around to Pergamum because they felt like this Greek god could heal them. And the image for that particular healing god was a giant snake. And so some people think, well, that's what he meant. Nobody really knows what he meant. Here's what we do know. We all live where Satan lives. Like whatever that specific thing was, it would be interesting to know. Maybe we get to heaven, we find out what that thing was. But what you and I should remember is we all live in territory that is somewhat controlled 
by the enemy. There is evil in the world that we live in. The enemy of your soul, the enemy of my soul, has a measure of freedom in this world. And until God puts an end to it, and He will, until God makes all things right, we're going to live where Satan lives. And, and do we see Satan at work in the same way that the people at Pergamum did? Maybe not. Are there other places around the world that we point to and we know there's a lot of darkness there, there's a lot of evil there, there's a lot of terrible injustices there? Yes, but the reality is our enemy has certain freedoms to tempt and entice and trick and bring darkness. We all live where Satan lives, whatever that particular image was. Now, the the positive side of that is that Jesus says right up front, I know where you live. Jesus knows where we live. He says to people at Pergamum, yes, Satan lives there. I know, I know where you live. I know what your situation is like. I know what your community is like. I know what your culture is like. Jesus is not caught off guard by what's happening in Pergamum. He says to the people who live there, Look, I, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. I, I know where you live. And what it's like. And he says the same thing to us. Whatever circumstances are in your life or my life, uh, whatever pressures you feel, whatever temptations are going on, what, whatever measure of darkness or evil you see in the world around us, Jesus would say the same thing. I, I know all about that. I know where you live. I, can hand, I have power. We have truth. We can handle that. But then there's also this other reality about where we live and about darkness and, and evil. And it's the reality that light is most needed in the darkness. I know where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. Your city's where Satan lives. A lot of bad stuff going on. And yet, in that darkness is where light is needed. Light's not necessarily needed where there's more not light. Light is needed in dark places. And so we have sort of these parallel realities of we're supposed to live a certain way and we're supposed to obey God and we're supposed to follow Him with our whole heart. And there is darkness that doesn't need to get into our lives, but we need to take light to the darkness. In all of these letters, as Jesus is pointing out the problems of each city, He never says to any of the Christians, you just need to pack up your things and leave. That's what you need to do. You just need to get out of there. Just move to a better location. Why don't all of you Christians just go start your own city and all of you live right there in, in the Christian city and then everything will be better. He never tells anybody to move. What he says is, I want you to live right. I want you to honor me. I want you to hold fast to truth so that as you're changed, you'll begin to influence change in the culture around you. People will begin to see light in you in spite of their darkness, and you will begin to be a light in a dark world. We find this all throughout the Bible. If you read Old and New Testament, you find characters just like this. Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph ends up in a culture completely opposite from his faith in one true God. 
He ends up under leaders who don't believe what he believes, practice the, the faith that he practices, and yet Joseph becomes a light and a leader in the midst of that culture. The story of Daniel is the exact same thing. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those stories, Nehemiah, even Paul over in the New Testament. God never went to any of them and said, you should just relocate. Like, you should just move to the suburbs, and that would be better. And then everything will be fine. God said it's dark. There's evil. Sometimes it's going to be hard. And I want you to stay. And I want you to be light. And I want you to be true. And I want to influence the world through you. That's, that's still the strategy. That's still the goal of Jesus for all of us. Jesus goes on, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, a lot of stuff going on, right? A lot of imagery and symbolism and metaphor. We'll track down most of those. Let's, let's put this theme over these verses. Here's the theme that goes over these verses. The greatest threat to Christianity always comes from within Christianity. The greatest threat. The greatest danger to faith always originates inside the people of faith. Jesus acknowledges that there are problems out there in the culture. Jesus acknowledges that there's darkness and evil out there in the culture. But when he wants to fix something, he doesn't try to fix that. He concentrates on his people and says, I need you to be right. I need your hearts to be right. I need you to walk with me. And then we'll begin to influence the people who are outside of here. But I need to make sure that you're right first. He, he references the Nicolaitans. We, we encountered them in the church at Ephesus. Nobody really knows what they were teaching. But some people think that it originated with a guy named Nicholas, who in Acts chapter 6 was one of the original seven servant leaders who were chosen to help lead the church. The pastors and teachers needed to commit themselves to prayer, to teaching, to studying God's word, but there were other people who needed ministry, and so they chose seven people to lead those ministries. Nicholas was one of them. He was a leader in the church, and somewhere along the way, his heart began to move away from the truth of what God had said. And he began to teach things that were at odds with what Jesus had taught. And this becomes a movement. And, and fast forward now, 20, 30, 40 years, and this problem is showing up in various churches. Not a problem that started outside the church. A problem that started inside the church. And Jesus said, you have to fix this. You have to address truth and error in the church. Then he references Balaam and Balak, which is an even more confusing story. 
from Numbers. So let me try to summarize. Balaam was a prophet, but in some ways he was a prophet for hire. If you paid him enough money, he would prophesy whatever you wanted him to prophesy. So he's a prophet for hire. Balak is the king of the Moabites, one of Israel's enemy. So Balak, with a K, goes to Balaam with an M and says, I want you to curse Israel. And Balaam says, can't do it. Uh, God won't let me do it. Uh, so the, Balak offers him all kinds of money. Look, I will pay you. I'll give you lots of money. And Balaam keeps saying, you can give me all the money you want. It's not going to help because God is not going to let me curse his people. And sure enough, when you read the story, every time Balaam starts to talk to the people of Israel, he pronounces blessings over them. Like again and again and again. And Balak, the Moabite king, is just losing his cookies over this. And he finally comes and says, what are you doing? That's not what I want you to do. And Balaam said, I, I can't help it. God's not going to let me curse his people. So somewhere along the way, Balaam and Balak decided, okay, maybe this isn't the right way to get to God's people. Maybe just outright cursing them isn't going to work. Maybe we should just tempt them away from the things that they know are true. Several places that describe this, even this one, said that they enticed God's people away. So, so they go to God's people, and basically they say, look, you can keep worshiping your God, that's great, but we're having a really good time over here worshiping this other God. Why don't you go worship your God on the Sabbath, and then come hang out with us the rest of the time? And they started doing this. Hey, I know that, you know, you have the whole Ten Commandment thing, and that's cool. But when we get together, here's what everybody in our group does. And they violate some of the Ten Commandments. So like, you be all Ten Commandments on the Sabbath for your worship. You come break a few of those with us. And over years, as this temptation, as this enticing continued in the life of the nation of Israel, they eventually end up being judged by God. They, they eventually meet the consequences of God. Fast forward to the book of Revelation in Pergamum, the exact same thing is happening. They live in a culture that's squeezing them, that's making them feel uncomfortable. Perhaps for some of them, they don't want to be rejected, they don't want to speak up, and so... They're maintaining a form of their religion on Sunday, but they're just kind of going along with everybody else. They're, they're just drifting. They're, just, they're not paddling hard. Like, they're not swimming away. It's just their feet's up. They're on top of the inner tube, and they're just drifting. One of the words we would use to describe it is syncretism. Syncretism is the big word. That just means, like, you can keep all of your religion, just kind of add some of our stuff to. Right? You can sing the songs, and you can go to church, but this is the way everybody lives now. Right? Nobody feels that way about that issue anymore. Nobody really lives that way. Just this subtle enticement to move away from what God has said is true. Same tactic today. Same tactic in our lives. Same, same tactic in the lives of your kids and your grandkids. 
just a subtle, just do what we're doing. Just go where we're going. Just don't say anything. Just pick your feet up and float down the river with the rest of us. And we, we can make a long list. And it's, you probably, it's probably some examples come into your mind. We can make a long list. We don't have time to make a long list. I think one of the most revealing aspects of this whole enticing and temptation is how little difference there is between the way people who go to church on Sunday believe and the way people who don't go to church at all believe about most key issues. That there's not much difference. That for a lot of people who go to worship, their decisions, their morality, their actions, their relationships aren't guided by a biblical worldview. As a matter of fact, if you just followed them around, you might see very little difference between them and people who never even claim to follow Jesus. Just drifting. Just riding along with the culture. Jesus mentions food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality as two examples in Pergamum. Same two examples, by the way, with Balaam. Those were the things that they were tempting the Israelites to do, and the Israelites were drifting right along with them. It wasn't just the eating of the food sacrificed to idols. It was that they were participating in the worship of the idols, and that included a meal. That included gathering with people and participating in their worship of a false god, which also included sexual immorality. And on, and on some level, the behavior, it was just the symptom. The behavior was a symptom that something had changed in their heart. Someone, something had become a greater priority to them than God. And so behaviors became acceptable, not because of the behavior, but because God's no longer first in my life. God's no longer the focus of my life. Still happening today. Still happening today. We could talk about behaviors a lot. Behavior's not the core of the issue. The core of the issue is my heart has prioritized something over obeying God. My heart has prioritized something over the worship of God and Him being first place in my life. And for some of us, it's acceptance. I just want to be accepted. I just, I just want to do what everybody else is doing. I, I don't want to make waves. I just want to go along. And that takes God's place as first in our life, and we just keep drifting. For some, it's, maybe it's wealth. I want to get ahead. This is what you have to do to get ahead. That becomes first in my life. And so behaviors become justified because my goal is now different. My heart's different. For some, it's pleasure. Pleasure's first. God's not first. And I'm going to drift toward what's first in my life now. For some, it's power. For some in our, in our country, it's power. 
we just have the power, then we can. And so we have justified in the evangelical world a lot of behavior because we wanted power. We, we've justified, we've explained away behavior because the person's on our side, whatever your side is. We, we've explained away behavior because we think the power will be more important. And, and honestly, as a result, the church is more and more losing its clear crystal prophetic voice about all things because we just keep drifting with our culture because we're worshiping the wrong things in Pergamum Jesus comes and says this has to stop you you can't keep drifting He, he even says I'm going to come and fight you which is like something you would say in fourth grade, isn't it? But it's a little more ominous when Jesus says, I'm going to be against you. If that's you, if you're just going to go along with the call, I'm going to be against you. And he's not talking to people outside the church. He's talking to people in the church. I am going to be against you if you don't get out of the current and turn around and repent and come back to me. I'm going to stand against you. Which is only one of the consequences. The other consequence for drifting spiritually along with the culture that we live in is that when we drift, we miss the beautiful, mysterious, deep, abiding, fulfilling life that Jesus intends. He can't do that work in us if we're just drifting along with whatever. Here are Jesus' words, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives. I'm going to give them hidden manna. I'm going to give them a white stone. You want to know what hidden manna and white stone is? Nobody knows. Aren't you glad you stayed for the big finish? Nobody knows specifically. Some people think the hidden manna was the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was lost at one point, probably destroyed. But Jewish tradition is that one day the Ark is going to be discovered again. It's going to be this great discovery. The hidden manna is going to be there. It's going to remind us that God is true, and there's going to be this glorious moment. Maybe maybe that's what he meant. People think the white stone um, might refer to a ticket. Because if, if you were going to... Uh, a sporting competition, if you're going to a festival or a feast, if you were going to the theater, your ticket would often be a white stone. So that would be your ticket to get in. Other people have noted that when jurors acquitted someone in a court, they would vote to acquit with a white stone. You're free. You're not guilty. What a great moment. 
if that was you. White stones were sometimes given to people in competitions. If you were in a race and you won the race, you would get a white stone. We don't know specifically what came to their mind. What we know is hidden manna, white stone, they're all the, the goodness of what Jesus wants to give us. Like Jesus is inviting us in to a life that is deep and fulfilling. Jesus is inviting us in to a life that has ongoing sustenance. Like he, he wants to encourage us. He, 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 he wants to strengthen us. So whatever hidden manna and white stones were, they were the goodness of Jesus that he wants to do for those who are going to walk with him, who are going to trust in him in good times and difficult times when everybody's wanting to walk that way and when I'm the only one who's going to walk that way and the rest of culture is going to go the other. When I have to go against the current, Jesus is saying, if that's you, if you keep walking with me, there is a quality of life that I'm going to build in you that's going to be deep. And sustainable, and there's going to be peace, and there's going, to, there's going to be a well of joy. Your life's not going to be perfect. All bad things aren't going to go away. But inside of you, because you kept walking with me, there's going to be a depth of spiritual strength that you can't produce in yourself. You just got to keep walking with me. You got to keep walking with me. He says that on that stone, there's going to be a name and only that person's going to know the name. That's mysterious by itself. In the Bible, when somebody's given a new name, it, it represents a change in character. You read the Bible and you see a name change. It's like a new beginning. We're starting something. You're, you're a new person now. There's, there's an aspect to your character. There's an aspect to your spirituality that's fresh and new and stronger than it's ever been before. And Jesus says, if that's you, if you will not just drift down current with the rest of the culture, if you'll stand and walk with me and, and you'll hold on to truth and you'll trust in me, what's going to start happening is you're going to start changing on the inside. And you may be the only person that knows it at first. Like other people may not even see it, but you know that the way you're facing life, like the, the peace that you feel, the joy that you feel, the confidence that you have in Jesus, you're going to know that you're changing. That's a, that's a lot to give up just to drift downstream with the current. And I know it doesn't always seem like that. Like teenagers, I don't. Maybe it doesn't seem like a good trade-off to you because you're getting all this pressure from school. You're getting all this pressure for how people live now. Well, this is, this is how people date now. Well, this is how people do what they do before they get married now. You, you, all of this pressure is building, and you can't see it. You, you can't see it right now. But Jesus is wanting to do something in you. If you will walk faithfully, if you'll... Get out of the current and turn around and come back to Him. Don't drift. Don't just pick your feet up. Don't get tired of walking in holiness so that one day you look around and you don't even recognize where you are anymore.
and you don't even know how you got there. And you don't even know how to get back. That's why Jesus said, just turn around. Just step out of the strings. Get out of the current. Come back to the one who is true, the one who is powerful, to the one whose grace and love is available to you. Don't just keep drifting. Let's pray. Would you close your eyes? We come to the end of the, of the day, and I know there's different groups here, and I, I can't address all of them. But I imagine there's <clears throat> some of us, and we're weary in standing against the current that is our time and our culture. We're tired. And I want you to hear clearly from Jesus today. He's got the sword. He's got enough power for you. He's still in control. You don't have to fear what's around you. You, you don't have to shy away from what's in front of you. You don't have to feel like you're not enough. Because the reality is you're not enough, but Jesus is more than enough. Stand firm. There's some of us, and I think we're, we're at the moment where we're just about to jump in the river. We're right on the edge. We are just about to jump into the current and pick our feet up and just ride downstream. And maybe it's the peer pressure. Maybe it's the cultural pressure. Maybe it's the fatigue. Maybe it's the voices of people around us who, who don't have our best interests at heart. But for whatever reason, there's, there's some people here. And they're at that moment where they're going to stop standing and they're just going to jump in and they're just going to ride it down. Turn back to Jesus. Come on, turn back to Jesus. Six months, six years from now, you, you don't want to be at a bank that you don't recognize. Look, Jesus will love you. Jesus will forgive you. Jesus will run to you wherever you are in the stream. I'm just saying, if you're at that point, you're thinking about jumping in. Let us pray for you. Let people who love you help you be strong. And I'd be naive if I didn't think there were some of us in this room. And if we're honest, and we've been fighting honesty this whole time, the last 30 minutes, we've been trying to fight being honest. But if we were honest, we'd know we're six miles downstream. feet have been up. We've been riding in or two. And we've been drifting for a long time. We don't even know how we got there or how to get back. And Jesus says, turn back to me. Turn back to me today. Turn back to me today. Don't drift any farther. He loves you. His grace is available to you.
God, help us. We live where Satan lives. I'm not trying to exaggerate. I'm not trying to be manipulative. We do. We live in a world where there's all kinds of evil and all kinds of temptation, all kinds of darkness. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we lose sight of you. And we just pick our feet up and we drift. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, you told a group of believers just like us, come on back. Get out of the current. Stop drifting. Come on back. Help us to walk with you and for you and to live out your truth and righteousness and holiness because there's a life you're giving us, a life that is deep, a life that is meaningful, a life with enough reservoir that we can just keep drawing on it. We can just keep drawing on it. We want that. In Jesus' name.